I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, we need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Scott Matelski, Barbara Z. Banks, Rachel Henry, Wolf Wearing Wolf Pants, Elaine Bullock, April Bisbee and Caitlin Monaghan. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Coherence. Coherence was released in 2013. It has 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Eight friends at a dinner party experience a troubling chain of events due to the malevolent influence of a passing comet. I was feeling pretty, pretty damn uninspired this week and I was going through lists of films, top, you know, top horror films on Shudder, top horror films on Netflix, etc, etc. And this film came up. And I feel like I had heard of it maybe or I'd read the synopsis before at some point, but I was totally unaware of what the film was about and kind of it wasn't really on my radar and I saw it and I went, you know what, let's give this a go. And look, I'm not going to lie, I was pleasantly surprised. I really wasn't sure what to expect from this movie at all and I was kind of like, okay, weird synopsis, dinner party, pass and comet, weird things start happening And it is a trippy film. So from the off, you know just as little as the characters know. So you get sucked right into it. It's kind of reminiscent in that style of films like Cloverfield where stuff just starts happening and there is very little expositional detail to explain to you what is happening. And what I particularly enjoyed about this film is that the weird things that are happening start happening from the very beginning. But I didn't realise until the end that the weird things had been happening from the very beginning. And for that reason, I feel like this film absolutely warrants a rewatch because I'm sure I missed loads of things in the beginning that were really strange that I need to watch again in order to figure out what was happening or to give more information as to what was happening. To give you an example of one of these moments, there was a brilliant point in the film where they're all sitting around having their dinner party and one of the members of the group is new. She doesn't know any of the people. She's arrived as the other half of one of the other guests. She rocks up and during dinner, one of the other characters says that he is a famous actor and he lists a TV show that he starred in. And the woman, the new woman is like, that's one of my favourite TV shows. I don't remember you in it though. And there's this really awkward exchange where she's saying, no, I really I really don't remember you being in that TV show. And he's saying, well, I, I starred in it for the entire time that it was on. And it's really odd. And at the time, in the beginning, I was like, 
what what is this all about? I don't understand this dialogue. And as the film progresses, I was like, oh my God, that exchange was way more important than I thought it was initially. And to be honest, it was moments like that, that by the end of the film made me literally question everything. I was questioning my own damn existence by the end, okay? And the other thing that I loved is that we didn't really get an understanding as to how the comet that is passing overhead is apparently impacting this dinner party or impacting the earth. But what you do get is one of the characters has been really interested in this comet passing overhead. It's called the Miller's Comet. It hasn't happened very often in history and she's been obviously reading up about it and she tells these stories about similar events throughout history where comets had passed really closely overhead to areas of earth and the impact that it had had on the people. And what you get is these interesting anecdotes of well, maybe this is happening because of the comet, because this happened a thousand years ago, mixed with some potential physics-based explanations for what is happening to them because one of the members of the party, his brother is a physicist who specialises in this kind of thing. And I I just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed that it was a really new concept and the weird things that happened during the party itself were confusing, and anxiety inducing and it made my brain hurt at times and to be really frank I had to stop the film at one point and go and get myself some some comforting chocolate some anxiety relieving chocolate because I was like I don't understand what's happening I feel like if you watch this film under the influence of anything that your brain would literally explode and come out of your ears and that's 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 my scientific analysis of what would happen. And another thing that I really appreciated about this film is that it is such a small budget movie. It is basically shot in one house and I just love when you have films like that that prove you don't need a big Hollywood budget, loads of CGI, loads of special effects etc etc to make a good disturbing unsettling film. They can be just as effective with a small budget. And I am aware at this point that you're probably thinking, well, what is the film even about? Because you've said nothing about what the film is about. And guess what, dear listener? I'm not going to because I don't want to ruin this film for you. And I do think that you should watch it. And to be honest, my dislikes for this film are pretty nitpicky because overall I thought it was pretty good. But because the film is set in a house at a dinner party with a group of eight friends it does understandably try to demonstrate the relationships between these people authentically. So they have in-jokes, they talk over each other, the dialogue skips from here, there, everywhere, it bounces around, people aren't listening to each other. All of the things that you would find in the dynamics of a large, long-term friendship group anyway. So it can sometimes be hard to keep track of what's going on. And that combined with a pretty trippy plotline in general, means that it can be a difficult watch. The narrative constantly flip-flops between shock and confusion about the comet and the comet-related weirdness. And then it flips to human conversations about like relationships, infighting. And that can be really difficult sometimes. And I appreciate that actually that kind of probably reflects how the characters in the film are feeling at the time. But it's not always convincing. I think demonstrating a long-term friendship group dynamic on screen is really difficult. And it can at times be a little bit clunky. Maybe it's not as fluid as it would be in a friendship group. And 
Yeah, there's bits where I was like, mm, that's not very convincing. I don't really believe that you guys are a long-term friendship group. But again, like I said, I'm being really nitpicky here. And while this is a low-budget film, I got to a point where I really hated the camera work in the film. It was this weird mix between like static camera work and then almost like a handheld found footage camera, which really annoyed me. It just irked me after a while. I was like, just pick a lane and stay in it. And I fully recognise that these things all could have been choices that were specifically made to kind of further the unsettling, confusing nature of the film. But it just irked me, okay? And the film, it hurt my brain. It hurt my brain. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I thought about it for ages afterwards and I do want to go back and rewatch it because I feel like I missed loads of little bits that maybe pointed to the weirdness earlier on that I'd like to go back and have a look and see but it does mean that you need to be in the mood to watch this film I think you know if you were like I said if you were under the influence if I was watching this film under the influence of anything as somebody who doesn't do drugs or doesn't drink alcohol like if I if I'm under the influence watching this film you best believe I'm locking myself in a cupboard and crying there is no way I'd be able to survive. It gave me the same vibes as like Vivarium and Mother! Exclamation mark, Because I was like, what the fuck is happening? Quite regularly during the film. And I think I got so overwhelmed that there was a point where I was like, I don't care anymore. I don't, I don't care what happens. And then I started thinking about like alternate realities and what I would do if I met my alternate reality self. And I realised that I have such a big ego that I'd probably be really happy to meet myself. I'd be like, oh, look at you. You're absolutely amazing. And isn't it cool that you're also me? That's a joke, by the way, because if I met myself, I would probably just expire on the spot. Anyway, look, here's the thing. Do I think I understood the film? No. Did I enjoy the film? I don't know. Do I think you should watch it? Yes, it's four stars from me. So that was Coherence. Four stars. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, there is no need for a preamble for this story. But the one thing I do need to say is that Knock Once for Yes, the podcast, do an absolutely fantastic episode about the Screaming Skulls on their podcast. And it is so worth a listen. It is two hours dedicated to all different Screaming Skulls stories. And I would highly recommend that you listen. It's from May 2022. Go and check it out and let's get into it. My dad is not a man who you would say is interested in the paranormal. A few days ago we were sitting on a tiny beach in a tiny town in the west of Ireland. 
We were quietly watching the kids running in and out of the waves, the littlest one rolling in the sand. It's important to know at this point that my dad doesn't exist in a world where the internet exists. YouTube was a very recent revelation, as was the concept that you could buy things online. So as you can imagine, he has no idea what a podcast is. However, as we sat there on the edge of the world, he turned to me and said, Do you remember the story of the Screaming Skulls? That's a good one. You should write about it. And I did remember. A tiny memory unfurled in a dark recess of my brain. I remembered a big book of ghost stories, maybe an encyclopedia of ghost stories, or maybe it was just an encyclopedia and only the ghost stories intrigued me. Either way, there was a story in the book about screaming skulls, as well as a story about haunted computers and a story about cows that were inexplicably lifted into the loft of a poltergeist-riddled farm. It's amazing the things you remember. When I came home from our beach escapades, I started researching the stories of the screaming skulls and I didn't realise how simultaneously common and rare these things are. Common in that they are widespread in England and rare in that they seem to be specific to English ghost stories and lore. Before we go any further with our stories today, it is important to note that there exist many versions of these stories, which contain slight differences, so for the purposes of this episode, I went with what is the most popular and I will be covering the two most retold stories of Screaming Skulls that I could find. In a small village called Bettiscombe, in the county of Dorset, down a small lane, there sits a manor house. The house has belonged to the same family, the Pinney family, for hundreds of years. Throughout the years, the English monarchy has seen its fair share of bloodshed and Bettiscombe House acquired a screaming skull, albeit indirectly through one of these brutal battles for the throne, or so the story goes. The Monmouth Rebellion took place in June and July of 1685. The throne of England and the people of England ricocheted between Catholicism and Protestantism for many years, and in 1685 the Duke of Monmouth, James Scott, made an attempt on the throne. He was the illegitimate son of Charles II of England, and he was determined to take the throne from his uncle James II. Monmouth was a Protestant, and the people wanted a Protestant in power but not enough to fully support Monmouth in his quest for the throne, and although James II was a Catholic, he had promised to raise his daughters and heirs as Protestants, so people were okay with biding their time. The Duke of Monmouth had put together a ramshackle army, which was defeated, and the Duke was captured and put to his death. But what has the toing and froing of the monarchy got to do with our little manor house in the middle of nowhere? The house at this time was owned by a man named Nathaniel Pinney, and he had a brother named Azariah Pinney. And it is Azariah who is the crux of our story, or at least his actions are. Azariah had been involved in the Monmouth Rebellion. He had been part of the ragtag ramshackle army that had been roused to take on the might of the throne and who subsequently were quashed. The punishments for those involved varied. 
Some, like the Duke of Monmouth, were executed. Others were publicly flogged and more were deported to the colonies to serve a lifetime punishment of hard labour. Azariah was originally sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered, but due to his wealthy and relatively elevated position in society, he had managed to wriggle out of his sentence by paying £65. Azariah's life was spared, but he found himself being shipped off to the West Indies, enslaved and facing a lifetime of misery and suffering. Except that's not what happened. Somehow Azariah became a successful businessman while in the West Indies. He flourished and his wealth grew, and he eventually became a plantation owner and a slave owner, living out his life in luxury on the island of Nevis. Many years later, in the 1700s, a descendant of Azariah decided that it was time for him to return to Betiscombe, the land of his forefathers, his generational home. One could imagine the excitement he must have felt as he boarded a ship to sail across the seas and home to the lush green fields of England, to live out his days in a beautiful manor house in a small village that he had heard his father talk about time and time again. The slave that he brought with him likely had less longing to see the countryside of England, being pulled from his home and taken to a place halfway across the world to live out his days in slavery. It is not known what the slave's given name at birth was, but he was renamed Betiscombe on his arrival to the manor house and lived out his days on Betiscombe Manor working for the family. But he had one simple wish. He desperately pleaded with the family that on his death, his remains be returned to his homeland of Nevis Island. He wanted his corporeal form to be buried in his own earth, not here, not halfway across the world. If his wishes were not heeded, then the family would be cursed. He would haunt them and cause untold problems for generations to come. They buried his body in the churchyard in Betiscombe. We could speculate forever about why the family did not return his remains to his homeland as he had wished. But it is likely to be a combination of reasons. They probably did not believe that anything would happen. Besides, in their opinion, a good Christian burial in a churchyard should have been enough to appease any soul. And the sad reality was that he was the property of the family and they likely did not think that his wishes were in any way important. But it was not long before they would begin to sorely regret their decision. Betiscombe Manor was soon under siege. A cacophony of screams and wails and moans assailed the corridors. The pinnies were petrified. The sounds of screaming reverberated through the rooms of the manor house. Days went by and they could find no respite from the sounds. The nights were the worst, because their screams were accompanied by that nauseating sense of dread that only the darkness can bring. The house felt safer during the day, but at night time, it felt as though danger was lurking in every corner. There are reports that during this period of time, doors slammed through the manor, windows rattled, and furniture was strewn around the rooms. Eventually, 
The Pinney family could take it no more and they returned to the graveyard, dug up the remains and carried them back to Bettiscombe. And the house fell silent. It is admittedly unclear what happened next. Whether the remains were reburied and the skull kept in the house, or if the remains were sent back to Nevis and the skull kept in the house. One would hope the latter, but whatever the case may be, the skull remained in the house. The family were terrified of removing it for fear that the screaming would begin again. There are stories that, throughout the years, owners have become emboldened and sought to remove the skull. In one such instance, the skull was removed and the owner threw it into a nearby pond, wanting rid of the ridiculous and macabre memento that seemed to draw people to the house. Visitors regularly came knocking to get a look at the screaming skull. That night, as the skull lay on the muddy bed of the little pond, the manor was once again overtaken with screams and wails and moans, so loud that the neighbours woke in their beds and looked out their windows in fear, wondering who had been brave enough or stupid enough to remove the skull from its resting place. The owner was forced to go to the pond and retrieve the skull and return it to the manor, at which point the screaming ceased. Another brave soul was convinced that burying the skull was the only solution. They dug a deep hole, buried the skull and covered it with dirt. Pleased with their effort, they went to bed and the house remained bizarrely quiet. No screaming to pierce the night air and no moans and wails to wake the occupants from their slumber. However, the next morning, the skull was back, sitting quietly on its perch, just as it had done before it was buried, except that now it was faintly dusted with dirt and mud, and though the hollow and blank expression of the skull obviously had not changed, it seemed to stare accusingly at the members of the house, almost daring them to try and get rid of it again. But here's the thing. There are lots of different versions of this story, some with slight differences and others with significant differences. But one thing is true. The skull does exist and remains at Bettiscombe House to this day. But there is more. In the 1960s, the skull was examined more thoroughly and it was discovered that the skull was in fact that of a woman. An Iron Age woman. There was an Iron Age settlement in the area and it is likely that her skull came from there. Perhaps from a burial mound. But her skull also showed signs of being submerged in water for a period of time, so perhaps she was taken from the nearby pond, but not in the way that our story initially suggested. Not one mile from Bettiscombe Manor, there is indeed an ancient mound that was a site of great importance and even went back to the Bronze Age, so it is entirely possible that at some point in history, a member of the Pinney family happened across an Iron Age skull, even a Bronze Age skull, brought it home and suffered the consequences. Bettiscombe House is nestled in the southwest of England, and about five hours north of it 
there lies another Screaming Skull tale, and perhaps the most famous Screaming Skull tale in England. The story of Dickie of Tunstead Farm, located between Wally Bridge and Chapel on Le Frith in Derbyshire. Dickie is the name that had been affectionately given to the skull that sat in the window of this farmhouse overlooking the countryside. And it was believed that once the skull was left undisturbed and shown courtesy and respect, there would be no issues. It is believed that Dickie had been left at the farm for generations. Unlike the skull at Bettiscombe, which sits idly until it is disturbed and then wreaks havoc, Dickie was believed to be somewhat of a pleasant guardian spirit. There are multiple stories over the years of Dickie's good deeds. Allegedly, when thieves attempted to break into the farm, Dickie had begun wailing and screaming, terrifying the perpetrator so much that they fled the scene without taking a single item from the farm. Another version of this story is that the thieves actually took the skull to their residence, where wails and howls permeated the night air there and at the farmhouse too. It was so bad that the thieves returned the skull to the farmhouse. According to G. LeBlanc-Smith's article in The Reliquary in 1905, Among Dickie's pleasing traits are his habits of calling servants or other early risers, saddling the horses prior to a journey, giving notice of cows about to calve and of cattle who were in danger on stormy nights. In fact, Dickie pleased is an angel, while with his wrath aroused, he is just the opposite. Dickie, it would seem, was a pretty positive force in the house and a welcome house guest. It has also been suggested that Dickie would appear as a spectral image, a full-bodied apparition that was said to be linked with the skull. In Tour of the Peak, written by John Hutchinson in 1807, he wrote that A Mr. Adam Fox, who was brought up in the house, has not only repeatedly heard singular noises and observed very singular circumstances, but can produce 50 persons within the parish who have seen an apparition at this place. He has often found the doors opening to his hand. The servants have been repeatedly called up of a morning. Many good offices have been done by the apparition at different times. And in fact, it is looked upon more as a guardian spirit than a terror to the family, never disturbing them. But in case of an approaching death of a relation or neighbour and showing its resentment only when spoken of with disrespect, or when its own awful memorial of mortality is removed. Twice within the memory of man the skull has been taken from the premises, once on building the present house on the site of the old one, and another time when it was buried in the chapel churchyard. But there was no peace, no rest. It must be replaced. According to the legend, Dickie was removed from his windowsill home just twice in his history. And although there is little written about what actually happened when Dickie was removed, there was much speculation about what happened or what might happen. In his historic romance, Mr. William Andrews wrote, It is believed that if the skull be removed, everything on the farm will go wrong. The cows will be dry and barren, the sheep have the rot, and the horses fall down, breaking their knees and otherwise injuring themselves. The skull had been found during renovations to the farmhouse. 
It had been bricked up within a wall below the windowsill where it then resided. And it was said that when the skull was removed, wailing and weeping reverberated through the walls of the farmhouse. It was said that the furniture was moved and ornaments thrown to the floor. According to Smith's article, Dickie was forcibly ejected from his home during the rebuilding of the house. Before long, a spectre appeared, to the consternation of the workmen, and morning after morning the work of the day before was damaged all day long as they worked, no matter how noisily, a moaning was distinctly heard. Dickie was therefore sought for and replaced. After which, the work of rebuilding progressed apace. At another point, the skull of Dickie was buried in the local churchyard, the belief being that a good Christian burial was important. But again, wailing and screaming echoed through the farmhouse, and as well as this, a great storm raged. Cattle became sick and died. Dickie was once again returned to his windowsill. Much like the skull at Bettiscombe, Dickie's skull was flung out into a local reservoir, and all of the fish are said to have died, and the skull was fished back out again. And that's not all. Dickie was also bizarrely held responsible for the moving of a railway line from London to Manchester. It was believed that Dickie was unhappy with the track passing through his land, and therefore set about destroying the work. According to The Haunted Homes and Family Traditions of Great Britain by John Ingram in 1897, the most amusing part of the superstition connected with Dickie is the following. When the London and North Western Railway to Manchester was being made, the foundations of a bridge gave way in the yielding sand and bog on the side of the reservoir, and after several attempts to build the bridge had failed, it was found necessary to divert the highway and pass it under the railway on higher ground. These engineering failures were attributed to the malevolent influence of Dickie. But when the road was diverted, it was bridged successfully because it was no longer on Dickie's territory. Dickie, it seemed, was not limited to wailing, screaming and poltergeist activity. This skull, this entity, was powerful enough to rain storms down on the local people and to sabotage any attempt to alter the land while also having the ability and the impetus to be helpful and positive when he so felt like it. The skull and its connected apparition were not the only strange goings-on at Tunstead Farm, as there were also local reports of a big black spectral dog that would be seen roaming the grounds. As with the skull at Bettiscombe Manor, where Dickie actually came from is up for debate, and there are differing stories as to who the owner of this powerful skull actually was. One story is that the skull is part of the remains of the soldier Ned Dixon, and this story is the most commonly accepted, likely because it fits with the name of the skull itself. When Ned Dixon was away at war, his cousin and his cousin's wife laid claim to the farm and began living there expecting that Ned would not return from war. To their great chagrin, Ned returned very much alive and very much wanting his farm back. But his cousin and his cousin's wife were unwilling to give up their new home quite so easily. As Ned lay in his bed one night, they descended upon him, beating him to death and beheading him. 
burying him beneath the flagstones in front of the fire. But Ned was stubborn in death as he had been in life, and his remains simply refused to remain beneath the flagstones and, in an Edgar Allan Poe-like turn of events, his head would continually rise up from the shallow grave as though pushing his way through the earth to return to the mortal realm. The farm was plagued with sickness and bad luck and howls and moans shook the very walls of the farmhouse while poltergeist activity was rife. There is another story which reports to be the origins of Dickie and is completely different to the tale of Ned Dixon. Generally, the story goes that the skull actually belongs to a woman, who is unnamed in retellings but who lived at the farmhouse with her sister. The stories vary, as with most of these local legends, but it is generally believed that both sisters fell in love with the same man and one sister brutally murdered the other. In her dying breath, the sister declared that her remains must stay at the farmhouse forever. John Hutchinson, in his Tour of the High Peak published in 1809, remarked that this skull, although popularly known by the not very reverent male name of Dickie, has, quote, always been said to be that of a female. Why it should have been baptised with a name belonging to the male sex seems somewhat anomalous. Still, not more wonderful than a many, if not all, of its very singular pranks and services. To enumerate all of the particulars of the incalculably serviceable acts and deeds done by Dickie would form a wonder, but not a wonder past belief, for hundreds of the inhabitants of the locality for miles around have full and firm faith in its mystical performances. How long it has been located at the present house is not known of whose body in the flesh it was a member is equally as mysterious, save that it is said, but what has not been said about it, that is not pure fiction, that one of two co-heiresses residing here was murdered, and who declared in her dying moments that her bones should remain in the place forever. It is further said that the skull did not, some years past, appear the least decayed. So whether the skull is the result of a murdered soldier or sister is unknown. And while the skull definitely existed, there is much pictorial evidence of this, we are probably never going to get definitive proof of where the skull came from or even the gender of its owner, as the skull apparently no longer exists at Tunstead Farm. The screaming skulls of Betscombe and Tunstead Farm are probably the most famous screaming skull legends but there are many, many more stories dotted around England. There seems to be a haunted screaming skull in every county and though many of the stories bear the same or at least similar tropes, there are variations too. For example, skulls that don't scream, but simply reappear over and over despite being removed from their resting place. Wherever these stories are told and whatever their slight variations may be, it is interesting that they seem to be a uniquely English phenomenon. In Tour of the Peak, Hutchinson writes, I have talked about Dickie to a great many people who have heard of him, and in some cases known him for years. They all say just the same thing when asked their opinion. They say, I don't believe in him, and yet there must be something. This, I think, fairly represents local feelings towards him. There is absolutely no dread of him, 
but there is an undercurrent of superstition which makes people regard him as more than ordinary, less than dangerous, and, on the whole, too curious and mysterious to be passed by with contempt. So, in short, even if you don't believe in the Screaming Skull legends, it is perhaps wise to tread carefully. Just in case. I had not thought about Screaming Skulls in a very long time. And don't you just love starting off a story giving kind of backhanded compliments to your dad? I mean, it's not like he's ever going to listen to this. He doesn't know what a podcast is. But he did bring up Screaming Skulls when we were sitting on the beach and I thought to myself, Christ, Screaming Skulls, that's a name I haven't heard in years. But I really, like, really did have that little memory going, hang on, I know there's this, I know, I know these Screaming Skulls stories. I'm going to have to find them. And I then I remembered when I was like maybe 12, I won an art competition and I had drawn and painted a Screaming Skull for this Halloween art competition thing and got like shortlisted for a prize. I wish I could find it now. I mean, it was years and years and years ago. It was a long time ago. But it's amazing how these memories are just lurking around in your brain. And just to say there are a million and one sources linked in the description of this episode but I have to I just have to hand it to Knock Once for Yes the podcast um they just did such a brilliant two-hour episode all about Screaming Skulls and their research is immaculate like it is incredible their research is so good I cannot recommend them enough and what they do amazingly in this episode is for example in the Betiscombe story they went back and found all of the opposing versions of the story and then tracked the actual genealogy of the Pinney family and what elements of the story are historically true etc etc and it was really it was really brilliantly done and they did the same thing with Dickie at Tunstead Farm so they really put the work in. And I think it's important to kind of flag to people, to highlight to people before you go look at these sources, particularly in regards to Betiscombe. There's lots of great sources. They're all linked in the description. However, a lot of these sources are written in the past. They are written in a bygone era where there were lots of problematic beliefs and lots of problematic language that was widespread that is now completely unacceptable. So there's your there's your warning in case you're going to go kind of looking through these sources. Yes, they're very interesting and they're definitely worthwhile looking at, but just be aware that there's lots of problematic language and lots of problematic beliefs that are kind of presented in these sources. What I really loved about these Screaming Skull stories is, aside from the paranormal elements, the screaming, the wailing, the poltergeist activity, etc., etc., the stories themselves are probably just not true, but they have been passed down from generation to generation in an attempt maybe to explain weird happenings in these houses. It's amazing that in Betiscombe Manor, the story was that this skull belonged to a slave who was brought back from Nevis Island and that that story was kind of widely accepted until it was realised that no, it's not a skull of a slave from Nevis Island that was brought back. It is actually the skull of a Bronze Age or an Iron Age woman. And just because the somewhat problematic story of a slave being brought back and cursing the family if his remains weren't returned to Nevis Island, 
just because that's not necessarily true, it doesn't make the the story of this screaming skull any less interesting. The skull exists, but the skull is the skull of a woman from the Bronze Age or Iron Age period who was obviously buried somewhere in the area and her burial place has been disturbed at some point in history and her skull brought this farmhouse. So listen, let me tell you, if I'm being buried all them years ago, and I'm happily resting in peace, I'm alright peeing, and then my skull is dug up and ends up in some manor house and everyone's spreading lies about me, you best believe I'm going to be screaming and throwing furniture around. And I think it's likely that this story of Azariah Pinney, etc, etc, I think there probably is elements of truth to it, but it makes for an interesting and juicy story to pass on to people. It's got everything. It's got war. It's got uprising against the throne. It's got somebody being sent away to live a life of hard labour. But instead they made their fortune. And then it has a slave being brought back against his will. And longing for his homeland. And cursing people who didn't honour his wishes. I mean it's got everything. And in some ways it's far more interesting than it's a random skull that we found when we were digging up a field to plant crops and we decided to bring it home and it probably wasn't a good idea. And it seems that there was just enough of the Azariah Pinney story that turned out to be true that allowed the story to stick. And elements of it, of course, were exaggerated. Elements of it were confused with other periods of time during the household's history. But the story has remained popular. And within the story of Betascombe, there is often reference to the skull and the belief in screaming skulls having its roots in like Celtic origins. The head was incredibly important for the Celtic people, both spiritually and ritualistically. And if you want kind of more information about that, maybe go back and listen to the Hexham Heads episode. And therefore that would suggest that the screaming skulls would occur in Celtic mythology and lore when a burial site, a skull was moved, was removed, was disturbed... However, it's kind of unlikely to be anything to do with the ancient Celts because they don't appear anywhere else geographically on the British Isles. So I don't know of any stories, Irish stories, Northern Irish stories, Scottish stories or Welsh stories about screaming skulls. It seems to be primarily an English piece of folklore, which I think is so interesting because geographically, obviously England shares a border with Scotland and Wales And there is not very much sea space between Ireland, Northern Ireland and England. So it's really interesting that the stories haven't spread. And the story of Dickie is just great because Dickie seems to be a bit of an all-rounder. You know, you can pretty much blame Dickie for anything that goes wrong in the local area. And I think the story of Dickie was repeated in the local area with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think people were fully invested in this story. But as Hutchinson wrote... It seems that people were like, well, it's not really true. But also, you never know and you probably should treat the skull with respect. And it makes me kind of sad that we're probably never going to know where the Tunstead farm skull came from. You know, we're not going to have the opportunity to find out, oh, it was Iron Age, it was Bronze Age, or it was belonging to a man or a woman. Because I genuinely don't think that knowing the true origins of these skulls takes away from the veracity of their stories Because the stories are really interesting bits of folklore either way. And it does make me wonder if, you know, these manor houses were built all over England, all in different places. And a lot of these manor houses had adjacent farms. And it made me wonder if, you know, several times 
people were farming, they were digging up land and they uncovered old ancient bodies, skulls and brought the skulls into the households. And these stories of screaming skulls just became linked to households that happened to have a skull that was found on the land. And maybe it's possible that these stories of screaming skulls were actually conflated from like maybe one single story of a screaming skull that was passed around by people who travelled around the areas. Or maybe people disturbed ancient burial sites, brought stuff home they shouldn't have, disturbed ritualistic burial places and the spirits of those skulls were like, hell no, you do not get to drag me out of the ground, bring me to your house, put me on display and think that I'm not going to kick up a fuss. It's still incredibly curious that the stories didn't spread to Scotland, Wales, Ireland or Northern Ireland. It doesn't make any sense to me. But one thing is very clear from reading these stories today. And that is that you do not be dragging bits of bone home that don't belong to you. Okay? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your own story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.